0: Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. Such as? Carrie, you can tell us this. This is a safe space. Are New York guys such bad boyfriends that they drive women into atheism? (laughs) I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are joined by Soren and Ever Johnson of the Trinity House community. Soren and Ever, thanks for joining us. Wonderful to be here.
1: Thank you so much, Andrew. Can you
0: tell us a little bit about your Trinity House community?
2: The mission of Trinity House community is to inspire families to make home a taste of heaven for the renewal of faith and culture. And we do that by equipping families through our workshops and weekly e-letter. We also engage the community through a cafe that we opened in 2014 called Trinity House Cafe and Market. It's in Old Town, Leesburg, Virginia. And that's really a representation of the domestic church in public, a beautiful home-like cafe. It's in an old home that can welcome our guests and give them a little taste of heaven. And finally, we encourage families through regular heaven-in-your-home gatherings. So we think, well, workshops are great. The cafe is great, but Couples and families need to be coming together on a regular basis to encourage one another, to provide that bit of accountability as they seek to form their children and really the awesome responsibility of forming our
0: children in the faith. And uh, Soren and Ever just gave a talk in Rome at the World Meeting of Families, which we were all at. So it was great to see you there. Definitely. So great to see you there. And we were, we were in a group of about uh, 60 people in the American delegation, which was part of the whole meeting, which was, gosh, I want to say over 2,000 people from around the world. Now, in your talk, it happened to actually dovetail pretty well with a series that we did earlier in the year on discernment. Although we didn't get to what you talked about. So it worked out really well for you to come on the show here and impart some wisdom about discernment, not with respect to like the priestly vocation, which we largely focused on before, or in general, but specifically in a family context. So I'd be curious to hear from the two of you, what does that look like in family life?
1: We're talking more basically about learning to hear God's voice and follow it. And when you talk about discernment in family life, you want to think about what the end goal of discernment is first before you start trying to do it. So the end goal of discernment is to follow God's voice into communion with him in heaven. You first, you might think about discernment as kind of a long path where you're going to be trying to make decisions to make your way through life and journey toward heaven, and you're listening for God's voice to guide you as you make those decisions. If you think about discernment as leading you toward communion with God, and you know that a family is an image of God and a family is meant to live in communion as the persons of God do, then you can start to see that what you're discerning is how to get closer to heaven, to communion within your family. So I think once you think about what discernment is for, it changes a little bit how you do it.
0: Yeah, I like that principle that communion is sort of what discernment is ordered to. Because I think when somebody maybe sits down to try and discern, especially when they're new to it, they don't necessarily know what they should be doing. (laughs) and it could be sort of nebulous. Right. Because communion is specific and there are a lot of other aspects of living as a Catholic or a lot of other aspects of the spiritual life that already point towards communion. So you've kind of helped to make it easier to fold it into something we were already doing.
2: Yes, and what's amazing is that the family is already further along in this life of discernment than possibly many parents think, in that each family is a communion of persons. Uh, The catechism says that the Christian family is a communion of persons, a sign and image of the communion of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So rather than being a distant, far-off reality, well, actually, our families reflect the Trinity in a beautiful and very physical, concrete way. So discernment then just becomes, how do we deepen that reflection of God's image on a daily basis?
0: I think parents might like to hear that so they don't they don't have to start from scratch. Like, good news, this is something you are already in the process of doing, <laughs> so you don't have to right. take on this whole new thing. Absolutely. Kind of speaking of that, as the the family being an instance of communion. In the family, how do we create an atmosphere for good discernment?
1: There's a couple of things that you can do. The main thing is what Soren just said, which is to understand that the family is an atmosphere for good discernment because the family is a communion of persons. So the good of the family in communion, the family members in communion in a way, is already the atmosphere that you're looking for. Another big part of creating a good atmosphere for discernment is to know that if you think of discernment as learning to follow God's voice, it can be a little worrisome and people worry that they'll mishear God's voice or they Mm -hmm. won't be able to hear it or that he's too far ahead of them for them to be able to hear him. And so to know that the Eucharist is that kind of unfailing aid and discernment. So it's not so much about understanding what God is saying to you about the decision that he wants you to make, but more kind of clinging to him in the Eucharist as you make your way along that path. So whether you, you know, understand God in English or not, or in ideas or not, or in exactly how to make this decision or not, you can still be with God on the path that he's taking you on in the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And that's why we always focus on the Sabbath as such an important part of creating a good atmosphere for discernment that leads to communion in the family. Because when the family centers their family life around the Sabbath and around resting in the communion that God has given them from his own heart, then they get a very strong sense from that weekly communion, how to stay with that. So when you go into your daily decisions and discerning how to stay in communion with God and your family members, whether those are small, medium, or large decisions about how the family can move forward, you're deeply rooted in that communion that God has given you. You don't have to create the communion amongst the family members. God gave it to you in the Eucharist. So now you need to maintain it with your decisions. And I think that's a little bit easier to do than thinking that you need to make the decision in and of itself, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. It sounds like it's It's not so much that this is a program that I have to start and sustain. It's just a reality that's already there by virtue of my being in a family and by virtue of God being present in my family life and specifically through the sacraments and especially the blessed sacrament. And then it's just up to me and my family members to kind of abide in that reality and be true to the thing right. that's already there rather than make yes. a thing that isn't there before.
1: Exactly. And and good discernment is being true to communion. When you're asking yourself as a parent, should I work for one more hour or is it time for me to plan dinner and get that started and feed my family? What is good for your communion is the answer to each of those questions. That's a, you know, a small question, should I you know, go on a run because I really need that fitness or should I help my, is it time to help my child with his homework? What does our communion need? And sometimes your communion needs you to do self-care, to (laughs) do the things that you need to do, you know, for yourself, because you're not always capable of helping others with their things. So there's so many moments, whether they're smaller or larger decisions where, you have to take kind of the person and the common good into consideration because they're both part of the communion yeah. and then um, make that choice of what will make your communion stronger.
0: What gets in the way of this kind of discernment that you're talking about?
1: I think the biggest thing that gets in the way is lack of understanding hmm. what the family is, what the Christian family is for and what our fundamental goal is. When people don't understand the family as an image of God living in interpersonal communion, they can get easily distracted by the world. You know, so you don't, if you don't have your end goal strongly in mind and understand how you're going to achieve it, and then you go into family life, and obviously everyone knows it's very challenging, it can be chaotic. It's exhausting when you start having kids and all of the things that you have to do every day to take care of your family. I think people get um, pushed into a reactive mode where they don't really have their ideals as a goal that they're actively working on front and center. So then, of course, it's easy to become prey to all of the things that are so dehumanizing in our culture of course, you know, technology and the sort of move toward becoming simply a consumer rather than a creator, a co-creator with God of culture and of communion of community. Yeah. I think what gets in the way is distractions. It's not having your goal actively in mind and Actively creating that immersive Catholic experience in your home for your family to enjoy and live in communion together and starting to basically just get pushed around by um, material forces in the world that compete for your attention, distract you, take up your time. And so a lot of families will go for months, if not years Without realizing that they aren't moving closer to their goal, they are just allowing themselves to be spent on worldly things and activities.
2: When we look around, we're seeing that families are obviously wrestling with the attacks from the world, if you will, with nihilism and, of course, economic instability. But then within the family, obviously, we've got our own legacy of original sin, our wounds that may be carrying over from generation to generation, the anxiety, the overwhelm, the exhaustion. All of these things can be distractions from creating that atmosphere of discernment in the family. However, they can also be avenues for God's grace to be trusting the Lord even more as we build that atmosphere for communion. So, Ever and I have been married 21 years this summer. We have five children ages 10 through 19. And it's not a stretch to say that the years go so fast that if parents are not focused on this goal of communion, as Ever just said, they can wake up and the child can be off to college. And they will have spent all of this time pursuing the things that are in the world, resume builders, activities outside the home, kind of transforming their own home from what it could have been a domestic church into just a base Mm. to do stuff in the world, a kind of place to throw your stuff before you run to the next practice, the next competition. That's a great loss when we lose that vision for the home and we wake up and our children have gone to college and we haven't been building that atmosphere of communion around the dinner table on Sundays through evening prayer, the rosary. All the beautiful little ways throughout each day that we can be infusing our homes with the love of God, with this Trinitarian interpersonal
0: communion. Soren, you just used the exact word that I remember when I was a kid thinking of my house as a base. That that is the oh, word sorry. I use. <laughs> so I you you're Very absolutely <laughs> right. Yeah. It really rings true.
1: When you talk about communion being your highest goal, what exactly are you saying? I mean, people love to spend time, you know, for instance, shopping, playing sports, studying, reading, hanging out with their pets, and all of these great things that we can do. So why is communion our highest goal? Mm. Well, People are made for love and interpersonal communion where you're known and and loved and your good is willed by others is the highest form of of human being or human action. But the thing about our culture and the way we often go about life in our family is we allow all of our time to be taken up by lesser goods. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we don't really learn how to interact with people at the highest level. In fact, many people avoid learning to interact with people at the highest level because their parents didn't teach them how to do. And in fact, their parents may not have been very good at it at all. Mm -hmm. And so when they go out into the world and they try to do jobs and uh, build civic institutions and do something good for society, they're not able to do it because the hardest part of common life is relating to people, interacting with people, having emotional intelligence. Relationships are kind of the highest good, but many people don't want to pursue them because it's too hard, because they weren't given the tools earlier on to start learning how to be unselfish, make sacrifices for people, communicate well with people, share their feelings and thoughts with each other, be respectful of people with different personalities. So It's interesting because many people today won't even recognize interpersonal communion and relationship as their highest good. It's actually the thing that they're trying to avoid because it's so hard and they're so bad at it. Mm -hmm. It's so unfortunate because that kind of loving interpersonal communion where you're truly known and loved by other people is our highest good. And if we weren't so damaged and wounded. It is what we would truly thirst for and desire. And it's what God wants from us. But because we're so used to more addictive substances and substances that are easier to consume and that are much more impersonal, like entertainment or reading or shopping or even sports, although sports does start getting into the team aspect much of the time you do have to learn to, to work with other people. so it's interesting and and sad to think that our highest good isn't necessarily recognizable to us anymore as the thing that we most want.
0: Yeah and it seems like any of these well maybe not any but a lot of these you know examples that you're using they could in theory be sort of the location for, this sort of communion to play out or the occasion for it to play out. Yes. Provided that the family has that deep interior understanding of what interpersonal communion means and is able to enter into that activity, not to flee from other people, but to find those other people in that activity and really to Amen. sort of see. Yes. And you know, Ever, I gotta I gotta be honest. When I first learned about something as abstract as Trinitarian theology, it seemed impossible to me, and it still does, to live in a family or to live in a marriage and not have that understanding of what communion is. To not have that understanding of how the persons of the Trinity relate and how that forms the foundation of our being and the fulfillment of all our desires. I don't know how it's possible to live in a family without that.
1: Absolutely. It's it's sad, but we know a lot of people who are doing just that.
0: Not that like families who do that successfully are like... Better or of greater value. It's just easier for them to be what they are.
1: Exactly. For those who don't understand it and are letting themselves be distracted by lesser goals, the lifestyle is dehumanizing. Whereas they may very well turn away from learning how to be an in interpersonal communion because it's so hard, they will also be grappling with a void at their core because no matter how many material pursuits you use to try to fill up the whole, the whole can only be filled by interpersonal communion. Right. So the thing that you may not recognize or may be running from or think is too hard to accomplish is going to haunt you anyway, while you're consuming more and more material things. So yeah. it's sad because many many people are are leading a dehumanizing lifestyle where their life and their activities are taking place at a much lower level than they have been called to yeah. god has given them the gift of imaging his own life but and that's always available to them to learn how to do but they're not doing it and they would rather suffer the fallout of not having the thing that they were made for than go through the hard work of learning how to love. Mm. And of course, we're guilty of that almost, you know, every day in some very evident way, we haven't chosen love, we've been overwhelmed by, you know, whatever forces in the world. And it's very, very hard work. And many marriages that we know, once they get to the point of realizing how difficult it will be to actually love, they decide to just live Kind of two separate lives within the marriage and family. Yeah. And they've drawn a line where they're not going to try to go any further into relationship because they have decided that their own will with regard to this particular set of things is more important to them. So that's also, you know, very sad because God is always trying to give us the grace to. Truly unite our lives more and more into a better and better image of His life.
0: It's sad, but it's it's hopeful too, because it means that there's you know we're, we're all sort of missing out on it to one extent or another. But at mm-hmm. least there's exactly. something. At least there's something to be missed out on, and it's not just right. Exactly, it's yeah. not just seeking refuge in the phone so that you don't have to give your undivided attention to whoever whoever's annoying you in your house or something. Right. But at least there is something more there that's always going to be available. Right. All right. Well, is there anything more that you want to add?
2: I think for families who find this project of creating an atmosphere of discernment in family life, we would just encourage fellow parents to, sure, it can be overwhelming, but to really take heart and to recognize that they can make a small step forward in this upcoming Sunday. You know, for so many of us, Sunday just becomes another day in the week, a time to get more work done. Ever and I are really trying to point to honoring the third commandment and making Sunday special for your family, of course, based in the Eucharist, as a great first step in kind of reclaiming possibly the lost ground that a family might have when it comes to this immense project. It's a lifelong project, it's not a checklist. And so we want to encourage families to, if you're looking for one place to start, look at the opportunity that the Lord is providing each Sunday to renew us, to allow us to abide in him, and then look at how you can carry that into the week. Maybe it's by getting back to family prayer, just five minutes per evening, or maybe one decade of the rosary, or for families who can pray the entire rosary each evening, ever was blessed with a family that prayed the rosary every night and it's bearing fruit that she's seen that we've seen. So we just wanted to offer that bit of encouragement because there's so much that might be pressing against us.
0: You know, if you try it this Sunday and it doesn't work out so well because you're distracted or the kids are being noisy, good news. There's another Sunday after that. That's right. So, <laughs> that's right. You that's get unlimited, right. unlimited at Always
1: try again. And if you're tempted to think of, you know, what can be the chaos of family life as a distraction to being able to achieve your ideals, just remember Jesus became incarnate and the people around you are images of God and your family life is not a distraction to finding God. You find him in them and in serving them and loving them. The funny thing about all this is it's so much easier than we think it is on the one hand, but of course that's what makes it difficult because (laughs) the hard work is sitting right there in front of you waiting to be loved. And in some ways you want to make it harder than that because it is so hard to love and and it's so simple.
0: Yeah. That's well put. I think that's a good note to end on. We'll have a link to your website, trinityhousecommunity.org, and also to the cafe in our episode notes. Soren and Ever Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. And we are back with part two of the Before Trilogy with Kara Bach. Kara, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we are coming in hot having just watched Before Sunset from 2004. So, Kara, this was your first time seeing it. but uh, So you just watched it with your husband, and he had seen it before, right?
3: Yes, indeed.
0: And I've also seen this movie before.
3: One of the things that hit me really hard is that this movie is set in 2004. <laughs> I graduated from high school in 2003. Several things hit me. First of all, the CDs, mixed CDs was like, wow, I'm really taking back right now. The other one was that, does it occur to you that this entire storyline would not exist basically from this point onward. I got a Facebook account in 2004. None of this happens.
0: Yeah. If nothing else, they were a little bit older. You know, they were in their 30s. So maybe they were were hearing about MySpace and like catching the second wave of (laughs) MySpace or something.
3: Yeah, totally.
0: We're not here to talk about advancements in technology. We're here to talk about (laughs) the exciting developments after... Jesse and Celine, are two main characters, parted ways at the end of the first movie in 1995. And so they are getting back together. They have bumped into each other in Paris, not entirely by chance, because Jesse has written a book about the first movie, basically. And she came across the book and found him when he was doing his book tour when he was in her hometown of Paris. So I don't know if you noticed this, Kara, but he titled his book This Time.
3: Oh, I didn't notice that, no. Which is...
0: It's supposed to be so clever and precious because, you know, at first you think it's just this simple like this time as in not last time, not next time but this time. But it also has a little second meaning, this limited time that we have together that is slipping away, Mm -hmm. playing directly into the hands of the kind of people that you see in the the book signing at the beginning of the movie who are fawning over Jesse.
3: I'll give them credit. I appreciate a clever double entendre. And you know Jesse, oh,
0: he loves being listened to and being thought to be like insightful. Like he should really host a podcast because it sounds like that would really satisfy a lot of his uh, a lot of his desires.
3: <laughs> we're not going to talk about technology and advancements in technology, but Jesse definitely would be a podcast host if we <laughs> were going to be talking about technology. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. You're mentioning just him really liking to talk about himself and think of himself. He sort of calls himself out on that later mm-hmm. about sort of man's desire to be important. So it was interesting. He talks about like trying to pursue his best self and the ideas that he had about marriage being the next step. I don't know, to me that felt really connected in uh like, I have these ideas about being important or, like, what being a man is.
0: Oh, right. Yeah, because the men he admired were married and she was, like, yeah, really yeah, yeah. confused about where he was coming from with that.
3: What's sort of striking to me about Jesse, aside from the fact that he's, like, clearly unhappy with his marriage, is that it all sort of feels like this pursuit of meaning Like, he's looking for meaning in all the wrong places. Yeah. I give the movie a lot of credit for the acknowledgement that there is meaning in life. But he kind of keeps coming back to this idea of having a purpose to your life. And if there's no purpose, then, like, why are we here? So he's clearly, like, searching for something. And he's, you you know, in the first movie that he comes from a broken home. And so there's clearly some sort of sense of I need to find my purpose within love, within relationship, within family, even though he clearly didn't really love the woman who is now his wife and like didn't seem to understand what marriage was. Nope. But at the same time, he like clearly loves his son in a very pure and right way. So he's kind of like getting at the edges of like meaning and purpose and all these things, but he can't quite pull it together.
0: It's like he's running through a list of options of potential answers. And actually in the list are the like inklings of the right answer. And then he just Mm -hmm. moves past it and goes on to the next item on the list and He just doesn't go back to the right one and pursue that one further.
3: Jesse's a way more interesting character to me and also frustrating. Like, I just want to, like, reach through the screen and shake him a little bit. (laughs) Because he's, you're right, because he's circling around the right ideas. And he kind of is, he clearly is acknowledging the right things. And we can... I'll just dive into the kind of religion stuff. Like yeah. at one point, he mentions that he went to a Trappist monastery and how struck he was by the pursuit of being at peace with God and how much he admired it.
0: And how he like he expected the monks to be grumpy and miserable, and it mm-hmm. turned out they were all just really happy because they weren't under like the pressures of the world and they were just able to the way we would phrase it, abide in God's presence, mm-hmm. not bound up in the concerns of the world. He doesn't have the vocabulary to understand it that way. So he just thinks like, I don't know, these guys lucked out and they're in a good spot. But
3: it's like, it's like they've got something figured out. But it, he's so committed to not being religious that he can't kind of see the, like, there's a reason why these guys are so at peace. Yeah. And the the thing that you're searching for is a God-shaped hole and they have it filled. Yeah,
0: right. It's, it's an interesting contrast to the friars they see walking around Vienna in the first movie where they're sort of poking fun at him. And here Mm -hmm. he has an experience of men in a religious community that is in this case positive and he admires it, but he just doesn't just got to dig into the why man just, just keep going. And he just moves on to the next thing.
3: Yeah. It's almost like their conversation. You kind of get the sense to like, that's how his life maybe is like their conversation Mm -hmm. in a way it touches on serious things. But they always sort of skirt around it because they never want to like get into it with each other. Yeah. <laughs> Which it makes you feel like maybe that's how they're dealing with it in their own lives. Like but- they have these encounters with deep truths about humanity, but they can't quite spend the time looking them in the face. Yeah,
0: that's a that's a big theme in this movie. I think even more than the last movie, where they're talking around a thing, but they're not saying it directly. I don't think they ever say I love you in either this movie or the first movie, but you know no, so. you know that's how they feel.
3: Right. I mean, they spend the whole movie sort of like dancing around the fact that they're both hurt by the whole experience.
0: Right. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So because they, they recognize they're very self-aware people. They have spent a lot of time looking back on their experience in the first movie and they have probably played out this very conversation in their heads in advance, figuring out what, how, how direct do they want to be, and they're very circumspect about it. So they're trying to play it natural while recognizing how awkward it is. Because I think that's one of the first things he says when they start the, the walk and talk and they get back in the groove of what makes these movies so great. This is insane, or this is weird, or something like that. They don't pursue that any further. They just try and, you know, start a conversation which because of their chemistry is very easy yeah going back to the the more mysterious angle they talk about some other you know they sort of lump the trappist in with some other varieties of belief and one of them they return to the reincarnation question without actually remembering that they did it the first time and (laughs) they've switched sides (laughs) or at least she has because in the first movie, she's very pro reincarnation. She believes in the palm reader. And in this one, mm-hmm. she is super rational, skeptical, doesn't believe in reincarnation and doesn't remember believing otherwise <laughs> <laughs> and casually brushes off the possibility of God, you know?
3: Yeah. It's kind of interesting to me that on the one hand, she brushes it off. On the other, she feels this need to assert the fact that like, well, I think that it's Necessary to have some belief in, like, mystery or magic. Like, she brings out that Einstein quote. But it also feels very tightly entwined with her general posture about, like, relationships, too. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, well, now that I have taken the stance that there is no spiritual element that's real, it seems to have had the same impact on her love life. Like, everything is rational and, like, I don't really believe in love in a way.
0: That's a great point, actually. I didn't think about that because that's how Jesse works in the first movie where he has this Mm. relational wound with his parents and therefore he's cynical about everything else in the world because his parents' marriage didn't work out. So he thinks everything else is like that and he doesn't believe in a higher power or anything like that. And now she is the one with the more recent relationship wound, although he has one too, where because... She never met back up with Jesse for nine years, and she's had all these relationships fail in between, and she's never really felt it, that, well, there there can't be any transcendent meaning in the world, because it's definitely not for her. Mm -hmm. So she thinks. It's cool how they, in both movies so far, play out this, like, impact that relational wounds have on something that they would not think is connected, which is their belief about larger metaphysical realities. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right. Like that determines their belief more than like a sober, uh, rational analysis of first principles.
3: Yeah. I agree. It echoes to me some of the most, I guess, kind of like visceral biblical lessons. You know, a lot of the times when Jesus is comparing relationships to a father Or when he's like, if even your enemy wouldn't do the worst thing to you, why would your father in heaven do the worst thing to you? Mm -hmm. It is just such a human thing where our experience with the human world has an impact on what our thoughts and beliefs are about, like, how can we understand the eternal, we have to understand it through the lens of here I mean, there are plenty of religions that sort of try to separate them. And I think that's what makes it so confusing, at least to me, certainly as a Christian, where it's like, oh, you're just making something up. And it's like, because God is unknowable. I mean, that's the sort of like beauty of the Christianity is like, no, God is knowable because he has made himself human. And so we can know him
0: as we know ourselves. Even if you're not talking directly about the truths of the faith, family ministry is like evangelization by proxy almost where mm-hmm. you're addressing the obstacles that keep people from relating to God yeah I think Celine like okay she's she's very skeptical in this movie but in some respects I do think it's healthy because like when they're talking in the coffee shop at the beginning right after Jesse mentions his good experience with the Trappist he also talks about Buddhists and how not desiring things might be the, the way to go and how we wouldn't be miserable if we didn't desire things, which is a very Buddhist idea. And she pushes back on that, which I think is really healthy. Like, if we didn't desire things, it wouldn't be possible to be happy. you would just be nothing. Mm-hmm. And we should affirm that part, even if, on the whole, she's got some work to do.
3: Indeed. Although, it's funny. She has some work to do. But I think this, again, there's like so many things about these movies that are really compelling. And one, I think, is just the honesty with which they reflect the zeitgeist, both just kind of the like therapeutic deism kind of ideas, yeah. but also their postures about love and particularly for her just as a woman who lived in New York for many years and you know had plenty of not amazing dating experiences. I totally connected with a lot of her stances where she was like building a shell around herself, right? Of like, well, I've got my amazing career and like love doesn't matter and like it's better when I'm by myself rather than with my apparently sociopathic boyfriend.
0: Carrie, you can tell us this. <laughs> this is a safe space. Are New York guys are they such bad boyfriends that they drive women into atheism?
3: <laughs> uh, that's a good question. So, I think the problem is more that you never often get to a boyfriend stage uh, there's a lot of like bad early dating and like very little commitment going yeah. on okay which i feel like you know she kind of hints at some of that where it's like it's better to not get too attached because someone's going to leave anyway and so you kind of build up more interest in personal pursuits let's say yeah maybe that's more of an urban problem but i think that the that's Happening in general, sort of culturally, as you know, more men too are kind of running up against like extended adolescence and a lack of interest in commitment. I think you kind of get both sides of these coins. But I felt like her angry rant in the in the car. I've had that conversation with friends. (laughs) Can we come back to that? Yeah, yeah.
0: That's one of the most incredible dialogue scenes I've ever I've ever seen in a movie.
3: Great. I was like, oh, man, that was too real for me.
0: Okay, so we'll come back to that. We'll come back. Yeah. All
3: right. I got another question
0: about not addressing an issue directly, which is when they're recollecting their first night together and they're talking about whether or not they had sex, which, to be clear, was contraceptive, unchaste sex. We're not approving of it. (laughs) Uh, But it it plays a significant role in their, I guess, self-image in this relationship. Where Mm. he is under the impression that they did, in fact, have sex. And she is under the... She claims to be under the impression that they did not. Kara, I think I have an idea of why she would lie about an experience that both of them shared and should equally remember. So I'm going to guess about why she would lie. Because she doesn't explain it. She just says, I don't know, women. Which I don't think is (laughs) satisfactory. (laughs) But... Uh, she lets him think for like half the movie that he was wrong.
3: Yeah. Well, first, I would just like to say that I thought this was a really clever nod to the did they, didn't they yes. debate about the first movie. Yes. Which I, I thought was very cute. And it seemed like they, for an extended period of time, they were trying to make you think that like, there's no answer <laughs> to this. Neither, like they have contradictory <laughs> memories about it. It's so satisfying
0: when, when a movie is aware of a fan disagreement in interpretation and then decides to mess with the fans at first about it, and then decisively comes down on one side and does not <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> does not do anything to take the other side. They they definitively did have sex. She does admit this later on. Of course they did. There's no way they could have possibly forgotten that. Yeah. See also her conversation in the first movie about not being able to get that experience out of her head you know beforehand Mm -hmm. but so okay here's why i think she would lie about it because she is still not sure she hasn't seen him for nine years she knows he's gotten married in the meantime to somebody else and she is trying to gauge how much that experience meant to him and if she is detecting in him that it didn't mean that much then she is going to say okay well it didn't happen as sort of a defense mechanism and if he Mm. if he resists the lie then she will know, she will have confirmation that, in fact, it did mean a lot to him. And is that, Mm. how does that sound?
3: In a generalized, like, would a woman do that? Yes, I think that that's like, I think that's a very fair analysis. I'm only hesitating because one thing that I find really interesting about her character in particular, I mean, she's very obviously neurotic. My memory of the scene is that she's a lot more aggressive about sort of being like, we didn't have sex, Yeah. less of a like, oh, what do you remember about that night? Like, she does this in the first movie, too, where she kind of like jumps the gun of just like putting a bunch of stuff out there. <laughs> and it feels a little bit like she sort of jujitsu's herself in this one where she's like, oh, yeah, like it totally didn't happen. And he's like, oh, um, wait, but I totally remember it did happen. And she's like, well, now I've got to stick to it. I don't know. <laughs> Okay. She kind of like goes off the deep end and is like, I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I did that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: But I think you're probably right. Like the subconscious part is sort of a desire to like test him, but it's under the surface of her like, I'm just like sort of word vomit that comes out. Mm. (laughs) It's like, I think she kind of regrets after it happens.
0: In other respects, and this is, I think, equally true for both of them. They're like, trying to take the temperature of the other person and feel out Mm. what's okay to say and what what attitude is okay to bring to the conversation. Mm. Like that sticking your neck out kind of thing. It's a delicate balancing act that I think they completely nail. Like the the little arm touches, Mm. like when they're trying to be sociable and warm, but not too warm. Like, you know, Mm. when they're they're in conversation and like they touch the other one, the other person's arm. And then I got to, you know, uh, reel it in a little bit.
3: It's funny you say that though, because I, I felt this in the first movie and you get hints of it here too. We talk about the fact that there are things that they clearly disagree on and that they find, like, certainly that Celine finds unsavory about Jesse. In the first movie, it's kind of his cynicism. In this movie, she's sort of the like activist Mm -hmm. in a way where I feel like he's sort of uncomfortable with it. And there's a lot of little like statements where he's kind of like, well, you know, maybe it's not that bad. And she's like, what do you mean it's not that bad? <laughs> and that's about the one issue that I kind of have with their like quote unquote relationship is like, oh, there is this passionate love, but there's so much of the movie where they're kind of deflecting the really hard stuff. And it's one of those things where like, as you know, someone who's married and like you're in a long term relationship it's so obvious that like this is going to fester and be a thing that you guys like have to address, you know, like, sure, there are some topics where you just like agree to disagree. And, you know, there are certainly things where Jason and I disagree and it's like, we've hashed this out and we're just like, not going to agree on it. It's not critical enough that we're going to like, you know, that we broke up over it, but I don't really get the sense that they're ever going to talk about it in their relationship. I know there's a third movie, yes, unknown spoiler alert. I have no idea. I haven't seen it yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And that kind of goes back to the sort of willingly not addressing many multiplying elephants in the room. Mm. The biggest one is that he's married, which they go a shockingly long time without addressing, even though his, his wedding ring is wide out in the open for everybody to see. And she she has to bring it up. He doesn't even say, "Oh, we we can't talk too long. I'm married." Like he is very willing to Im- be emotionally unfaithful before uh, any like questions of even more serious forms of infidelity come up. He has to catch a flight to go back to the U.S. and he keeps procrastinating going to the airport because, of course, he wants to stay with Celine because mm. it's the first time he's seen her in nine years, and he's <laughs> he's been thinking he's about clearly her been the whole pining time. away. <laughs> yeah, he he even says. On his wedding day, as he was going to get married, he was thinking about Celine, Ugh. my dude. Don't get married. <laughs>
3: yeah. Ugh. No, yes. Don't get married.
0: In fact, I'm going to bring this up. I don't think we can do it in this episode, but in the next episode, I want to debut a new segment to the podcast, a segment within our segment. So stay tuned. So we'll, we'll return to the question of Jesse on his wedding day because that that needs to be discussed. <laughs>
3: I'm dying to know what this segment within this segment is.
0: <laughs> so, yeah.
3: Terrible decision making in movies? A <laughs> little cliffhanger. Kind of.
0: But we'll we'll get there. Don't worry. Okay, okay. I think his point of no return here when he realizes that, oh, I'm not just catching up with this person today and then when I go back to my real life, but this is the woman I am, in my mind, I am meant to be with and no one else is ever going to make me as happy as this person in front of me. And it's when they're on the boat and Celine is talking about she says one line specifically, uh, you can never replace anyone because everyone is made of such beautiful, specific details, which is a really beautiful sentiment. And I think it's like her one of her greatest strengths is little observations like that. But, after that point, he's done. He's like, "What are we doing here? come on we, we can't we can't go back yes, like, totally and she 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 tries to like push back and say, "Well, you know what, what if we get together and we hate each other? And he's like, Yeah, like we hate each other right now, nine years later, come on, <laughs>
3: <laughs> although also a good insight on her part, but it's again one of those deflections, right? It's like, uh, I'm not going to take the risk, yeah by." Saying that, well, it could be bad, and so I don't want to put my heart on the line.
0: Right. So, speaking of putting one's heart on the line, maybe we should go to the the car as they're leaving the boat trip, where they have the real conversation.
3: The the scene.
0: Yeah, the scene.
3: Also, I hope that uh, I hope the driver doesn't speak much English because, like, <laughs> wow, what an awkward scene to be overseeing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Imagine two strangers in your Uber having this conversation. Oh my gosh, I should die. So she's talking about kind of her relationship woes, who she has not gotten married in the intervening nine years. She's just had a kind of a series of uninspiring relationships. And I think she's talking about the where the men are coming from, especially with her having such a successful and interesting career. She talks about how men need to feel essential. And it's not really about sex so much, Which is, is cool. They, you know, they talk about sex a lot in this movie. There's a lot of vulgar language in this movie. But at the end of the day, it's not really about that. Mm-hmm. And she's talking about how like, the men in her life needed to feel loved and they couldn't do that in a professional capacity because they were professionally equals, she and her, whichever boyfriend. Because she doesn't need a man to provide for her. What she says is she needs a man to love her and that she can love. And that's the need that has gone unfulfilled and that men have either been unwilling or unable to do, not in like in a specific context, just holistically. Mm -hmm. And so, Kara, this this speech like resonated with you, too, right?
3: Oh, I mean, I probably could have given this speech at some point in my dating career, it, it actually was like a little too real. I've given this speech. I've heard friends give this speech. It was like a real cry of the mid-2010 uh, single woman, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember the entirety of her rant. But the one that got me was when she was talking about the ex-boyfriends who then come and tell her that... She taught them how to love, and she's always the girlfriend before the girlfriend who becomes the wife. <laughs> I was like, yep, I've been there. I've done that. That hurts. Uh, <laughs> but I love her little rant where she's like, why didn't they ask me to marry them? I would have said no, but at least they should have asked me.
0: <laughs> Amazingly true line.
3: I was like, oh, it's so brutal, but so good. It feels trite to say, like, what's wrong with me? But she is identifying that, okay, obviously, like, I can pick guys who are capable of loving. Mm-hmm. They can love other people, but not me. Right. So, like, what's going on right. with this? Uh,
0: yeah, I got to tell you. So, it's interesting in this movie, the two main actors, they were more involved in the writing process than they were in mm-hmm. the previous movie. Like, they were still involved to some extent, but here from, from pretty much the get-go – they were in the room helping to write the movie. So I think it it speaks to maybe a little bit more genuineness and a little bit more kind of visceral feel to what they're saying, both of them. But that speech that she gives before Jesse goes <laughs> and there's his significant problems, that devastated me the first time I, I heard it and really since because it, it absolutely resonates. Like her, her line about how she's never been able to find another connection and how she sort of resents him for like, sapping all the romanticism out of life and, like, how every relationship Mm -hmm. since, because of the lack of connection, has made her feel like love wasn't for her. Absolutely Mm -hmm. shattering. Shattering stuff, Kara. Did that speak to you? There are a few movies where the dialogue alone will hit you that much without Mm. a striking visual or without a plot development to go with it or something like that. Soaring music or, you know, something about the particular Mm -hmm. language of film. This is not that. This is just a person talking in a car, and it's still Mm -hmm. able to have that kind of impact. Yeah, I think it's, for all the movie's considerable faults, it's an incredible voice to give a platform to.
3: Well, she's so good in it, too, because Mm -hmm. she's doing it in that kind of, like, like my hysteria is building, and I kind of can't stop it all tumbling out.
0: Yeah, that's another thing. Like, that is how people do it. They don't get up to the Mm -hmm. microphone and start really big. They build to it and they just, it gets out and they don't even necessarily want it to get out. But once it starts coming and the dam breaks, then you kind of can't help it. And what was really funny is like his reaction to that is not, he's not wringing his hands. He's happy to hear this and he's kind of amused by it. Like he kind of thinks it's funny in a, in a very dark way, <laughs> but he's relieved to hear that she cares about him to this extent, obviously.
3: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I've, like, you know, divulged the entirety of my husband and I's long, long history. (laughs) We were laughing several times through this movie because, I mean, there's a line at one point about, like, there's only a few people who you really connect with. And this idea of, like, going back to them. And this is, it is that kind of, like, that, like, heart-thumping I, like I felt it so viscerally that like that moment when you're like oh my gosh oh my gosh my sh-, like my opening is here it's finally like <laughs> I've been thinking about this for so long and now it's finally gonna happen and I'm here in this moment and she feels the way I wanted her to feel about me it's mm-hmm. like it's such a high
0: right in that moment such petty considerations like my existing wife and child are you know mm. easily swept aside
3: <laughs> luckily we were both single that was why this move forward yes but- <laughs>
0: right <laughs> You were the way it, su- it was supposed to work.
3: Amen. Uh, speaking of the wife and child, it was I did find his love for his son mm-hmm. and the like genuine sort of parental emotion that he was expressing to be so sweet and so real yeah. as somebody who has like a little kid now. It's just like that like, unadulterated, like, yes, of course, I want to spend, like, well, okay, when you're actually spending every moment of your day with your child, you don't really want to be spending every moment of your day with your child, but you, when you're not spending every moment of your day with your kid, you're like, man, I just want to spend every moment with them. They're so fun.
0: Yeah, because he says, like, I don't want to miss a moment of this kid's life, and which is not just him blowing smoke, because he says plenty of very despairing things about his personal life so you know that you know if this was part of it if you like didn't really care about the kid or something or was thinking of leaving which is something that dads do it's not out of the realm of possibility by a long shot then he would say it but no we're not giving him an easy out like that like he really genuinely is a loving father to his son
3: which makes it all the sadder it's
0: like oh right they're they're in an impossible position basically
3: this is why kids you do the good dating and you read love and responsibility
0: yes And if you are in marriage prep and you are thinking about another woman who is not in marriage prep with you, say something, tell somebody (laughs) who is in a position to help you because you will be better off in the long run. Preach. When you meet back up with the first woman nine years later, you will be able to say yes in an unhindered way.
3: And if that person is already in a relationship, perhaps already married, maybe you should do some work on letting it go. (laughs) That was more for Celine. Although it sounded like Celine had tried to and then she read the book and she was like you jerk.
0: Yep. I forgot how you made me feel and now I remember
3: and now you're gonna be here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't help but think about Jesse's wife and like Did she read your book? His poor wife. Like, oh. Who is not in
0: this movie at all. Minor spoilers for the next one. She's not in the next movie either.
3: It's funny because it's like, you have no idea what his wife feels. (laughs) Does she actually love him? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like, is she, is she like, I mean, I did think it was interesting that they bring up the fact that he and her have been to therapy. So, like, they obviously are aware that the relationship's not going well, but they've, tried to rectify it yeah that's a good point
0: they've been to couples therapy and also this is a person who's written a book about a woman he met and fell in love with in the span of a day i wonder it's not possible that they couldn't have brought the book up in therapy right couldn't be possible
3: i can't imagine i mean also what did he say it took him like four years to write it or something
0: yeah like half their marriage
3: ugh ugh So painful. Horrifying. Jesse, what are you doing, buddy? Yeah, seriously. Like, maybe you just needed some individual therapy and be like, yeah. I need to stop thinking about this woman who's not my wife. Because Okay,
0: timeline. They meet June 1995. They were going to meet up December 1995, but Celine couldn't make it because her grandmother's burial was that day, fatefully. He goes, he spends a couple of days in the Vienna train station looking for her, doesn't see her. He leaves crushed as low as you could be, rock bottom, goes back to the U.S., meets back up with an old girlfriend and hooks up with her at some point. Actually, no, we know because his son is four years old, so it's not right away. So he meets back up with his old girlfriend and later on they hook up. The way he phrases it is, she got pregnant, not really taking any responsibility there, and then deciding (laughs) to marry her, which I guess counts as taking responsibility, repeating how his parents got together, basically getting married to provide stability. In the meantime, thinking about Celine pretty much nonstop, thinking about her on the way to the wedding, then writing a book while his infant son is growing up and the book comes out. Is that the timeline?
3: Yeah, and I hadn't really thought hard about it, but the fact that you just brought up that his son is four and he said he spent, what, three or four years writing the book? So it's like, so pretty much from day one. yeah. You decided that, or not even decided, but just like, I'm going to obsess over this woman even more formally by writing a book about it. So I really can't stop thinking about it.
0: Yep. Brutal. Brutal. That is not the way to resist sentimentality.
3: Indeed. Indeed.
0: <laughs> so next time we'll come back to Before Midnight and see the, meet up with these characters nine years from then. So 2013, which is nine years ago. I'm looking forward to that, Kara. We'll see you later for Before Midnight.
3: See you next time.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, share it with your friends and leave us a review on Apple podcasts Bye now. And God love you.